Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Oh, well, yes, indeed. Welcome back to What on Earth. And thank you for joining us as we discuss the broader strategic issues facing Australian business owners and operators as we transition quickly to the post-carbon, net zero carbon emissions future. In this podcast, we look at the issues from an industry and business perspective, and we try to provide you with strategic and business insights into these issues. The changes are big and complex, and accurately responding to these changes is critically important for business survival. We here at What on Earth believe the first step is to understand what on earth is going on and to get our strategic thinking in place. This, po- this podcast unpacks the big issues and tries to find clarity in the chaos of change from a business perspective. Hello, I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Minerals, Energy and Supply Chain Resilience from the Australian Industry Group. And joining me each episode to help me unpack these issues and dissect what's going on are two learned colleagues and good friends. Firstly, in no particular order, Tenet Reid is the Principal Advisor for National Policy on Environment and Energy for the Australian Industry Group and a well-respected international voice on these issues. Hello, Tenet. Welcome to 2022. Yeah, some people are calling it 2020.2, uh, the uh, the upgraded, improved version of 2020. Let's hope it's a good year. And Paul Hudson, Principal Consultant of Paul Hudson Advisory. Paul is well known to many of you as a business and industry commentator with a passion for innovation and business improvements. Hello, Paul. Welcome to 2022. Thanks very much, James. Good to be with you. And I'm not quite sure yet whether 2022 is an upgrade yet. We'll, we'll know in the fullness <laughs> of time. Uh, 2020 hindsight, perhaps. There is a lot happening. Um, and the Christmas period was really busy with announcements in the net, transition, net zero transition world. It's pretty clear the pace of change is accelerating quickly. And that means we've got a lot to discuss. I thought we could cover a few different issues today, kind of a fast and furious examination of what's been going on, uh, perhaps a summer salad bowl of crunchy issues. Uh, so let's dive into this salad bowl and, and, and see what comes out first. But before we do, Paul, I saw on LinkedIn recently, and if anyone listening is not connected to you on LinkedIn, they really should, I see that you've just passed your 30-year anniversary of work, of being in the workforce. I was going to ask you what you've learned over the last 30 years, but perhaps a better question is, what do you think you will learn over the next 30 years? Uh, thanks for that, James. Um, yeah, it's quite a quite a felt like quite a milestone. Um, Thirty years since I started as a, a graduate in the economic policy branch of the Commonwealth Department of Primary Industries and Energy. I did have jobs before that, so with no disrespect to Pizza Hut and Woolworths um, <laughs> and uh, and delivering newspapers um, and uh, and a place called Banjo's Roosters and Ribs that uh, not many people will know about. Um, I uh, but yeah, thirty years in the full time career after I finished my degree. Um, what have I what have I learned? Um, I've learned that these issues are really challenging. They're tough, um, and sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Um, we were starting out looking at things like value adding. How do we value add Australia's resources sector, agriculture, mineral, energy? Um, how do we uh, position Australia into global markets? How do we commercialize our research? Um, all these kind of issues, which we're still talking about thirty years later. Um, and yes, there have been improvements. We've tried some things, we've done some things, but I'd really love to see, particularly not so much in the next 30 years, but in the next five or 10 years, um, us to actually really, uh, really value add Australia in a way that we've perhaps been talking about for 30 or 40 years. Some people might wonder what you mean by delivering newspapers, by the way, <laughs> probably ages both of us. Uh, and, and, and while we're talking about what's been going on, Tenet, I think you've got an exciting new initiative too that's probably worth talking about. Um, you're working with the Victorian government? So uh, I've been uh, appointed to a review of what the state of Victoria's emissions reduction targets for the period 2031 to 35 should be, uh, which is, is pretty exciting. Uh, I, I remain at AI Group. Uh, my day job continues, uh, but about 10% of my time for the, the next year 
uh, is going to be spent on this review uh, with uh, Martin Wilder chairing it, a prominent uh, climate uh, lawyer, uh, and uh, Emma Hurd uh, of, uh, of EY, who uh, was previously head of the Investor Group on Climate Change. And we're going to be uh, charting some new territory, I think, because uh, while every jurisdiction just about has got a 2030 emissions goal and they've all got a commitment to net zero by 2050 uh, at the latest, uh, there hasn't yet been a lot of exploration of what happens between 2030 and 2050. And so while this review is about Victoria specifically, I think the issues uh, and the approaches uh, that we uh, come up with are going to be relevant to everybody else uh, over the next couple of years as as we all grapple with uh, with what comes next. There are going to be continuing arguments, I should say, uh, at the national level especially about what we should do to 2030, uh, but the, uh, the next stage of the transition beyond that is very important as well. So I'm excited. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to grapple with. Um, and we really want to make sure that it is a, like a, a good consultative process. I've been part of a lot of consultations. I've complained about a lot of consultations. Uh, and uh, one of my key goals here is to ensure that uh, this is one that I can point to in future and go, well, you really should be doing what we did back in the good old days of the 2031 to 35 Victorian Emissions Targets Review. Sounds exciting and, 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 and really relevant. Picking up that point about 2030, there was a, several announcements over Christmas of uh, larger businesses, businesses in Australia, who realised that in order to get to 2050 net zero, they need to set harder targets for themselves. And 2030 is one that keeps coming up all the time. And when you put that into perspective, 2030 is eight business cycles away from now. Uh, it's not long. It's not long to transform a business if you want to stay in the supply chains of these larger organisations. And the question that increasingly is coming up is, well, how do we do that? Paul, at our, in one of the last comments at our last podcast for last year, you mentioned energy efficiency as being the, 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 the secret to starting your net zero journey, the way to get a handle on what your, what your carbon footprint is. What did you mean by that? We didn't get a chance to talk about it. What are the good businesses doing in, in, in that as their first step? And what are the businesses that aren't doing it? What are they missing? I think, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's often the, the bit that people miss. You know, we, we, we talk about transitioning parts of energy to uh, lower emission energy, but we don't often think about how do we actually use energy? Um, and how much energy do we use? And where are we wasting energy? And we're all wasting energy, right? Um, not just because I've got four kids are we use, wasting energy in, in my household, but, but in a business. There'll be, there'll be things that you're, you, you've actually subconsciously doing. You're just, you're just going through, you're doing something, and it's kind of stepping back and looking at it and going, why are we doing that? Um, how can we reduce energy? It's the easiest way. It's the cheapest way uh, to reduce your energy costs, but actually to also reduce your emissions. Um, and also then extending that out and actually looking at your customers and perhaps how they use their how they use your products. Are your products energy efficient? Um, how do you distribute them? Is that is there an energy efficient way? Is there a better way of doing it? So I think it's looking at innovation through that. But again, it's not big capital. It's not often big capital expenditure. Um, it can be some quite simple process improvements or just changes to the way you. Uh, you way you look at it, um, and I think it's empowering because there are things you can do yourself, uh, potentially without huge complexity, potentially without huge cost, um, and it's a really great starting point to make sure are we using energy the right way. And the other way is also to look at how you're being charged for energy. Um, there's lots of people that will actually help you right? working out. There's a way you put your machines on, which actually means you have a spike of energy on your equipment. Um, and that's actually what you get charged at by your retailer. Um, and therefore, you're paying way more for electricity, for example, just as electricity than you otherwise would be. Um, and there are ways of doing that. I, just even the sequence of putting the machines on uh, can actually change it. Um, so uh, there's lots of simple things to do. And there are lots of initiatives. Lots of state governments have programs. Local governments have programs around energy efficiency, uh, some really long standing programs. 
to do that and, and lots of advice and free advice as well, and even from retailers um, and generators to actually do that. So that's, I always think, a really good starting point. And then you start to actually understand how your business use, uses energy and its relationship with energy, which probably helps you to do some of the perhaps tackle some of the more challenging um, uh, elements. Yeah, um, don't accept the status quo just because you've always spent that much money on energy producing your product. That may be your your burrito. Look at the look at the energy and see if you can cut that by something dramatic half or something. Tenor, this is your area too. You've you've got a thought, no doubt. Yeah, so th- it's absolutely true that th- for many many businesses there are some simple straightforward things uh, that can be done to improve their efficiency and their. Um, the, the, the final cost of energy, like the price of energy uh, doesn't turn into the cost without usage. Um, so high prices uh, might not have to turn into high final bills um, if the, the time and the place that we um, use the energy adjusts. But there are some uh, some evolutions going on uh, that are that are changing the terrain here one of them is that self-generated renewables uh, can be extremely cheap and you might want to uh, sort of crowd in to maximize the usage of that um, you, you're gonna uh, save much more money on your self-consumption of your own generation than you're going to make from exporting that generation most of the time. Uh, The other thing that's changing, and particularly relevant to those uh, 2030 emissions goals, whether they're public goals or private goals, is that as the broader electricity system gets cleaner, uh, the the focus on uh, efficiency and on uh, the the savings of, of emissions shifts on to your use of gas um, and and other sources of heat. Um, and so, uh, what can you do to uh, maximise efficiency there? Tune boilers, uh, change the. Um, uh, we'll make use of high temperature heat pumps or other forms of electrification uh, or fuel switch. Uh, now, hydrogen is not going to be at a price that will give a lot of comfort anytime soon to people who find natural gas to be too expensive. Uh, hydrogen might match natural gas uh, in, a, in a couple of decades' time, maybe, maybe faster than that, but... For now, there's a significant price premium, but it's a, it's a lot cleaner depending on how it's made. Uh, and so uh, I think we're, we're moving into a, a somewhat more complex paradigm where what sort of energy you use and where it comes from, uh, from your own uh, premises or, or off-site, uh, adds to the, um, the factors that, that determine whether you're saving money and you're saving emissions. Uh, in the the best ways open to you. So energy management systems, uh, like taking an organised approach to uh, your your use of energy, uh, are something that's becoming more relevant. Now, there's a bit of work involved in setting one of these up, uh, and there are a few approaches available to do it. But that's a a way that uh, businesses who are finding uh, either the um, the bills are a worry, or uh, their emissions goals really need to be um, advanced. That's that's one really useful way of advancing that. All right. The the next issue in our salad bowl of uh, of crunchy issues to address is electric vehicles, and it kind of follows on from what you're just talking there in the, the use of of energy. Uh, when the world emerged out of COVID, it seems that um, all around the world, uh, people have been buying vehicles rather than going on public transport. They're worried about uh, public transport, so they're buying vehicles, but they're buying electric vehicles. There's going to be an expected 100 million electric vehicles cars uh, sold this year, uh, up from 63 million a few years a few years ago. The majority is in China, where they have a heavy subsidy uh, for buying electric vehicles. But what's of great interest is that America is buying uh, electric vehicles in their in, in their bucket in their bucket loads. 
anyone who's ever been in America during the, the Super Bowl will know that the ads on, on the Super Bowl are, are the big deal. That's, that's where they, they do their positioning for coming into spring and summer, what you're going to be, what you're going to be buying. And this year, the car ads are um, electric vehicles. Chrysler, Ford, um, uh, Hyundai are all uh, promoting their electric vehicles. There's this sort of cute ad that's going to be on there, which is uh, a dad giving her his daughter a fuel card for her birthday, um, uh, you know, a petrol card. Uh, and she gives it back to him at Christmas time, having not used it. Uh, and they're promoting the, 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 the cost benefits of having an electric vehicle. There's another ad where uh, dad's saying to, to mum and the kids, get in the car. You know, have you got your iPad? Have you got your toys? Have you, have, you, have you got your books? Because we're not stopping for the next 600 miles, promoting the fact that electric vehicles now go a long way. But the point here is that they're selling electric vehicles as their main product now. In Australia, we've seen a, a short, a small increase in, in electric vehicles, but not many. And there still seems to be a fair bit of resistance um, to going electric. Why is that? And, and, and where are we going with electric vehicles, considering there's all these benefits of, you know, no cheaper energy and good for the environment? What's going on, guys? Well, I think you're underselling the increase in local sales. We've gone from two-fifths of bugger all to four-fifths of bugger all. That's that's geometric growth. You're going to bring this technical speak to your new position, I can see. <laughs> but it does feel like we're we are reaching a tipping point. Projections for vehicle sales in electric vehicle uptake in Australia have been low. I like official projections, what's in the uh, the, the national uh, emissions forecasts, uh, what's in the electricity market operators' uh, projections for where demand is going to go. Uh, it all looks very small there. Uh, but, you know, they've all got a history of under, um, underselling the rate of change that is uh, possible, particularly with um, highly manufacturable um, uh, consumer goods, essentially. Um, so uh, it, it does feel like the the cost, the performance, uh, and the acceptance are, are reaching a point in a lot of markets where, and of course, that the hefty hand of policy in many markets, um, the much lighter hand here, are reaching the point where EVs uh, in the light vehicle space are going to quite rapidly become the norm. Uh, if that's the case, we're still going to have a huge fleet of internal combustion engine light vehicles, uh, which that like they turn over slowly in, in typical times. The average um, registered vehicle uh, is, I think, 11 years old uh, in Australia at the moment. Uh, so that's that's a significant lifetime and a, a, a slow um, turnover towards EVs, even with a very high share of new vehicle sales. But change is definitely in the air. What do you reckon, Paul? Oh, absolutely. And I think there's a it's a, a lot of things that are coming to actually bring electric vehicles to market. And I think if we are seeing a slow growth. Yes, it's uh, gone from two-fifths of bugger all to four-fifths of bugger all. In fact, I think I saw a a government media release, a state government media release, maybe a couple of weeks ago, which said that electric vehicles registered in their state have gone up like 5,700% in four years or something. And you go, it's still 7,000 cars or something, right? Yeah, we had uh, we had 20,000 sold totally at the end of 2020, and there was 8,600 sold in, in um, 2021. So yeah. we went from a total of of um, 20,000 and 8,600 in 2021. So the sales have been uh, significant, but it's still a small number. But I think that's also only a small amount of the demand. We're at the end of a long supply chain, um, and we know that uh, even electric vehicle manufacturers aren't manufacturing as many as they would like because of the chip shortage, because people have gone from spending their discretionary money on travel and experiences during the pandemic into gaming consoles and computers. Uh, the work from home uh, had a whole uh, on that, but it's also been in terms of things like electric vehicles as well. 
um, have actually, and vehicles in general, I mean, trying to get any kind of vehicle at the moment, new vehicle, you could be waiting many months, you could be potentially waiting a year in Australia. And we don't manufacture cars in Australia anymore. And so it's likely that um, as production changes and uh, the big manufacturers are only or predominantly only uh, making electric vehicles, which is we're moving from into that tipping point now. Um, and some of those nearer markets start to get absorbed, then we will get a deluge of electric vehicles into the Australian marketplace. And I think a couple other things. One, I'm really, I love disruptive innovation that's not technically based. I love the business model stuff. You look at the brands um, that how that is changing in the electric vehicle space. So the number one selling electric vehicle in Australia is Tesla. Uh, number two is MG, um, which is actually not, which is now a Chinese brand. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, I'm, it took 30 years. You don't have to go back 30 years to think of Ford and Holden and Toyota and, uh, you know, Nissan, Mitsubishi, you know, Hyundai, Honda. Uh, those those brands are now starting to pick up and actually really build at volume into the electric vehicle, uh, the electric vehicle space. Talking about the US, though, I think one of the things is that for a lot of people, they look at electric vehicle, there was range anxiety. Um, but I think electric vehicle, people think of, uh, you know, a golf cart. Uh, they think of something with very low power. Um, it's sort of going to trundle around. I think there's been a really big push both in Australia and the US as well that electric vehicle cars are responsive. They're powerful. They can go fast. Um, they are immediate kind of. Uh, so there's been a lot of that push um, into that space so that the SUVs, you can have a really powerful car. Um, it can last. It can have a long range. Um, and uh, and that, that I think, is really changing that view uh, of the customer perception as well. But I still, think, I still think supply is lagging demand at the moment, particularly in Australia for, for electric vehicles. Yeah, just getting ships into Australia is, pretty, into, is difficult. So car carrying ships is probably just as, as difficult. There's a possibility that we may have uh, some constraints on the supply side for, for vehicles for some time to come. So the auto sector have, like for, for all vehicles, have seen an, an upsurge in demand because, largely because uh, people have, um, you know, the, the economic disruption of the pandemic has meant that uh, an awful lot of people have uh, income that is held up, but an inability or an unwillingness to spend on uh, the sorts of services and travel and tourism and restaurants uh, that they used to, and they're putting that money into goods, uh, including um, turning over their car more often than, than they otherwise would. Uh, but the production of vehicles has not responded. Uh, and the auto sector expects that sooner or later things are going to go back to normal. Uh, and they're nervous about increasing overall production capacity. This shift to EVs is happening, but the overall size of the market that they're ready to serve, um, that they're very nervous that if they build up uh, that capacity, then sooner or later people are going to uh, be post-COVID confident enough to switch their consumption back to going out to restaurants and not buy so many cars. Now, if that expectation is wrong, if we just have a continuing parade of Greek letters and nerves about, um, about services and uh, restaurants and tourism uh, and the economy remains like demand uh, oriented towards goods more than um, more than it previously was, uh, then it may take a, a while for uh, producers to get confident enough to invest on the basis of that, and we could have tight supply for quite a while. So all of which is to say, uh, if you if you're looking to get an EV or anything else, I get yourself into the queue and uh, don't don't just wait for it to uh, to get easier in a in a year or two's time. There's a few things there. We can learn from America on this. Uh, the growth in commercial vehicles, in electric vehicle, is is growing exponentially, and I'll address that in a second. But one of the big things is the uh, the Ford F one hundred and fifty, the muscle car, the the big, hefty, noisy, powerful, 
to anything vehicle. And uh, many uses of this is uh, um, work use during the week, week and then take it off road on the weekend. Well, Ford have announced that they're discontinuing the 150 and they're going with the F-150 Lightning, which is full electric vehicle. They're discontinuing the gas cars, they're going electric. When they announced that, 200,000 cars were sold instantly. They got deposits on 200,000 and they immediately doubled their production for for the for the year, uh, like instant take up. And people are saying that it's actually a better car. The battery is in the middle of the, the vehicle rather than a heavy engine at the front. And it handles better, it responds better, it's more powerful. This is interesting. You get these sort of fleet owners start buying these things and it changes the paradigm altogether. Secondly, they're saying that the difference between here and America is that the fleet sales are going through the roof. The director of Chevrolet, the marketing director of Chevrolet said, commercial customers are increasingly lured by the low cost of operation of electric vehicles and the environmental, social and governance benefits of adding zero emission trucks to the fleet. We need to probably get that message across here and say, if you're a business owner, start thinking about your fleet as the second point. The first point is your energy efficiency. Now start thinking about your fleet. Um, what what would you say to this though? If if people are worried about range, they're worried about uh, about what's happening in Australia. Are we going to have the infrastructure in place and the policies to support it? I'm happy to have a first go at that. Um, which is to say that uh, on range, like the what you're what you need a vehicle for is is really important you know different vehicles are going to suit different niches um the average registered vehicle is driven on an average of 30 something kilometers a day uh but uh, that encompasses a huge variation uh, across um individuals and, and their use cases and some people of course households have multiple cars for different purposes. So, you know, right tool for the right job. Um, the other thing, though, is that there is quite a lot of effort in Australia at extending the infrastructure for charging uh, and uh, making sure that uh, range anxiety uh, is eased, particularly on, on major routes between, um, between the major cities. So uh, I think that that concern is going to uh, significantly ease um, over time. I think the other thing that's possibly going to help is um, oil prices are pretty strong right now. And uh, there's the, the, the rather worrying potential for those oil prices to go considerably higher, depending on the nature of what goes down between Russia and Ukraine and the rest and the west uh we we could have some extremely high prices for a while uh, which will increase the uh, perception of the the operational savings for ev uptake now oil prices bounce around uh you know that they're going to be low at some point as well um, but the the case for the financial case for evs does keep improving for many niches. Uh, but, you know, if you do need to um, uh, drive heavy loads, long distances with rapid turnaround, uh, you may be uh, more interested in uh, hydrogen um, fuel cell vehicles if you've got the, uh, the infrastructure in place for those too. And there is public support there as well, but it, it's that, that I would say is taking longer to come together than battery electric, which, which looks like an all-conquering technology in the light vehicle space. Yeah, the um, Fraunhofer Institute, am I saying that right? In Germany, uh, released a report recently that said that uh, we've gone past hydrogen for cars. It's just not going to happen. They said um, hydrogen will play a vital role in industry shipping and synthetic aviation fuels. But for road transport, we can't wait for hydrogen technology to catch up. Uh, so our focus should now be on battery electric vehicles for both passenger and freight. Would you agree, Paul? Um, to a certain extent, I think one of the uh, one of the things that's important to understand is the technology is changing, business models are changing, 
the infrastructure issue that Terence uh, Tennant talked about uh, is changing. Um, we're in a disruptive period, and uh, there's not going to be a single winner out of all of this. Is it would be my my opinion. Uh, there's going to be a mix, um, and so there will be some some uh, some routes, some uh, some regions, some infrastructure. Uh, because you know, and assets that are going to uh, suit battery electric vehicles quite fine. There'll be other ones where it's uh, where the, it's hydrogen um, fuel cell or, or or other technologies that are going to do that. Um, and it's going to be quite specific to the application um, and the timing as well. So uh, we we can't predict potentially what technologies might be around in fifteen twenty years around some of this. So it is very difficult, but. Um, but that we, you know, we can be looking at uh, our business, and we can be thinking about how do we how do we respond to that now, um, and how do we do it with others? Um, there is some public support. There are some grants and incentives around for electric vehicle infrastructure, charging infrastructure. There's charging infrastructure companies that um, you could potentially work with other businesses in your region. Uh, so, uh, as an extension of the energy efficiency, and as uh, as tenants said, around on-site generation of energy, um, to actually start thinking, well, but well, I'm not the only business here in this industrial estate. Maybe I could talk to some others, and we could approach an, a, an infrastructure company that might be willing to put put that infrastructure in, or we can actually do the sums ourselves and decide to put that infrastructure in, or there is an incentive for us to put that in, or a grant that we could work with the local council or with the state government or someone to actually put that infrastructure in. So there are ways of doing that, I think, that can be done in a collaborative way, which actually shares the opportunity, but also shares the risk um, uh, and the cost of, of some of that. I should add that we're starting to see uh, some even more ambitious policies uh, emerging from, uh, from Australian governments that are going to play a role here. So late last year, New South Wales announced a hydrogen target uh, it's going to uh, mandate the purchase uh, by gas retailers and large gas users of certificates generated from the production of green hydrogen in New South Wales. Now, the gas businesses have got to buy those certificates, but the hydrogen might end up getting used uh, wherever it's most cost effective to do so. The chances are that that scheme is going to speed up the use of hydrogen in uh, public buses in New South Wales and in heavy trucks, as well as some substitution for natural gas. Uh, so we'll see what the other states do and potentially what uh, what the feds do. Uh, but uh, there's um, quite robust policy that will guarantee uh, that significant amounts of hydrogen get produced and used. And look, I mean, I'd add to that as well that um, the the battery electric versus hydrogen, um, I won't say wars, perhaps it's a battle uh, that seems to be there, is a little bit of a, um, uh, look, I don't see it clearly. I mean, one's battery electric, the other one's fuel cell electric vehicles. Um, and so we're talking about a chemical way of delivering electricity into a mobile, potentially mobile, but sometimes stationary application. Um, and uh, what we see now is that green hydrogen is really going to be a chemical carrier of, of green electrons into uh, into parts of the economy, perhaps that are very difficult to directly electrify. And that might include some heavy transport, long distance applications, uh, chemicals exports, the steel industry, for example. Um, but uh, but it's still going to be electric. We're still looking at um, from a green hydrogen perspective. We're looking at extending mass electrification. Um, into the part of the world where global energy demand might be able to be directly electrified. Um, and that's quite considerable. And that's going to be a really important part for, um, I don't like to use decarbonisation, um, but but in terms of going to a zero emission or a negative emission future. The next issue in our, uh, our uh, summer bowl is, a, is um, a continuation on that. Let's move over to Europe where there is a, what shall we call it, a standoff between Russia and America, uh, but centred on Europe. And part of the standoff is that there is a pipeline of, of gas between Russia and Germany. Germany is being the biggest dependent, is almost completely dependent on Russian gas to warm uh, the houses there. 
uh, being winter, uh, they're dependent on Russia. And so when America and uh, Russia kind of have a standoff, Germany is trying to keep all sides uh, happy whilst the geopolitical issues are quite big. This has meant that uh, the US have said that we'll bring in LNG from other parts of the world to replace any potential you know, uh, restriction of Russian gas. Uh, and then they've said, well, we, there's not enough LNG in the world to do that because the Russian gas is quite big. And then, of course, that leads on to, well, this is only an issue during during winter. As soon as summer comes, we've got a few months in which to play around. And whilst all of that was happening, the European, the EU Commissioner for the Environment said, why are we doing this? Why don't we just go to full uh, renewable energy and stop mucking around with gas? To which everyone else said, I don't think we can. Tenet, do you want to pick this up? Take this anywhere where you like. But it's an example of we're coming to this sort of, um, of a crux of do we stay with the old world or move to the new world and what are the implications for geopolitics and a whole bunch of things? That's right. It's uh, issue piled on top of issue. And in, in the past week, uh, the uh, European Commission also announced uh, this uh, taxonomy of sustainable finance where there were huge arguments about what sorts of technology uh, should count as sustainable. And in the end, they've made two sets of people very unhappy by agreeing that uh, nuclear energy is sustainable uh, and that investments related to natural gas can be sustainable within some, uh, within some parameters. Uh, and so the the arguments about uh, Europe reducing its exposure to natural gas prices, which are incredibly high at the moment across Europe and uh, the United Kingdom, but also in uh, in Korea and uh, Japan and, and Asia, uh, reduce exposure to that, reduce uh, the um, the sway, the geopolitical sway that uh, that Russia uh, may have, reduce emissions versus the really important practical role that natural gas plays right now, but also the arguments uh, about natural gas as a as a bridge to decarbonisation. Now that's uh, something that many people I think would today say, oh well. Maybe natural gas was a bridge in the 1990s or the 2000s, but now it's more clear than ever that we can just uh, leap to renewable energy. And certainly um, replacing coal plants with combined cycle gas turbines that run all the time doesn't look like a particularly good idea anymore uh, because the fuel is expensive and the emissions reduction, it's about half, but you're not going to get much further without carbon capture and storage, and that would make it very expensive indeed. But uh, it's more ambiguous around the role of gas as a, a peaking uh, or flexible um, uh, electricity source, and then also the industrial role. So there was an announcement uh, this past week from uh, German steelmakers about their investment pathway to radically reduce 50% uh, reduction in uh, their steelmaking emissions uh, this decade. Uh, and a big part of their, a big plank of their strategy is to um, replace their blast furnaces with direct reduction of iron, initially using natural gas. Uh, and then when green hydrogen becomes available in sufficient quantities, and they have investment plans towards that too, converting those facilities from natural gas to hydrogen. So is that sustainable? Should they be leaping faster? Is this um, increasing their exposure to uh, the the energy weapon uh, wielded by Vladimir Putin or whoever comes next? There's lots of arguments to be had there, but there's no doubt that the super high price of gas is attracting a lot of attention. It's been driving up electricity prices uh, in those markets as well because of that peaking role that gas plays. Uh, and it's going to, uh, I, I think, uh, it's going to substantially accelerate their moves towards reducing um, reliance on gas, improving the efficiency of buildings, uh, electrifying uh, uh, heating 
in in many places. Uh, but I think there's going to be harder questions about uh, the the peaking role and the industrial role, uh, and I don't know how those are going to pan out. I predict lots of people unhappy with each other and many many arguments. That's what what we need. More arguments, more people unhappy. But, Paul, I think this does show that transition to, uh, you know, post-carbon is inevitable, but it's messy. A transition is not an easy process. It's very, very messy. Yeah, well, I started out by talking about what I'd learned over the last 30 years of of some of these, these issues across, you know, sustainability, innovation, research industry engagement, globalization. Um, uh, the the enterprise you know uh, improvement it is it's tra- and, and we I think we're going to have to accept that there's going to be decisions made and investments made that are going to in the fullness of time uh, look like duds um, not everything that we're going to back now is going to be a winner um, because you can do that in times of certainty but in times of disruption uh, there are going to be a, a a whole bunch of things that we'll we'll actually have to accept that we uh, that we that decisions were made that weren't the correct decisions at the time and people are taking a bit of a portfolio approach certainly com- big companies are taking a portfolio approach in the main um, because they don't know what the answer is going to be um, and you know tenant talked about the 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 inquiry that he's doing in victoria and this is the exciting thing for people who want to you know be entrepreneurial is to actually go you know no no one the brightest minds in the world haven't actually got this figured out um, this this hasn't worked. I mean, it'd be quite easy. It'd be much easier if we could say we're going to sh- shut down the global energy system for a couple of years, um, and we're going to work on it uh, with no energy being provided to anyone. But we're actually, you know, we're fixing this plane while we're flying it, um, and that's that's going to be tough. So it's all very well to go. Well, we want to reduce emissions, but uh, if you've got you know millions of your citizens freezing in their houses because there's no gas, um, then emissions becomes a second secondary issue um, uh, as well. So I think I think there's going to be these kind of two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's going to feel like three steps back, but then we'll do five steps forward um, and it will be messy and we sort of have to hang in there. But we also have to realise that we have a role to play in being optimistic, trying different things and also being accepting of decisions that may not be right um, and looking to make a, a better decision the next time or encouraging people to make a better decision the next time based on learnings from what hasn't worked. Over the break, I, uh, I spent some time, as I do, um, reading and listening about history, and I, I heard about the Californian gold rush. This is an analogy just to you know, lighten the load a bit. <laughs> um, the Californian gold rush was these people who left the, the, uh, the, the East Coast and went all the way across America trying to, you know, on this journey of transition, going to a whole new world, something they didn't know what they were going to do when they got there. They didn't know what it looked like. They didn't know how it felt. But they were risking everything on just up, upping stakes and going. wasn't good enough on the, east, um, on the East Coast, so they had to head to the West Coast. And where the analogy really kicked in was a lot of people failed along the way, but, but some got to real riches. Uh, some of the early winners failed. Uh, some of the late, uh, the, the late uh, comers also you know, did really well. There's no, there's no script. It's just the way you go. But what really intrigued me was that as they came across America, they bumped into people that were coming from um, New Orleans who were also on the journey. And in New Orleans, they had um, typhoid. There was a typhoid. So people were on this journey, <laughs> learning new things, discovering a new approach to, to life, new models, new whatever. And then they rang smack bang into a epidemic. And you so, oh, okay, there is uh, nothing new in the world. There is, there's always there. There's nothing... There's no right way, is there? You just have to do the best you can. And like you say, Paul, there's some duds along the way. There has been some early successes over the Christmas break. And I noticed Tritium was have got a good story. And Paul, I know you know about Tritium. But before we get to Tritium, um, we've been talking about hydrogen. And there was the export of hydrogen from um, Melbourne to Japan. Is, is yep. that right? Tell us about that story, because that's a good one for listeners to hear that there is success. It also has the caveat of being not green hydrogen. Well, yeah, you're giving me all the ones that people are yelling at each other about. <laughs> you're the so, peacemaker. Well, the, the HESC project, Hydrogen Energy Supply Chain, is 
at this stage is very much just a, a, a demonstration project. So uh, they are a, a consortium of Japanese businesses and Australian partners uh, making a really pretty tiny amount of hydrogen in the Latrobe Valley from brown coal from the Loyang mine. Uh, and at this stage, uh, they're, they're not capturing any of those emissions, uh, but they're making about three tonnes of hydrogen uh, and they're getting that hydrogen on a truck to the, uh, the, the port um, uh, and they're putting it on a ship uh, that is a first-of-its-kind international hydrogen tanker that can keep hydrogen at minus 250-something degrees uh, to prevent it from boiling off and get that ship uh, all the way up to Japan and uh, into... Uh, I think it's going to uh, wind up being used in a, a power station, uh, but like it's, it's just three times the stuff. It's It's not very much. What this demonstrates, though, is, well, it, there's a lot of learning along the way, but the practical issues involved in actually getting this quite hard-to-work-with substance uh, into existence and uh, halfway across the world. But it's also a testbed for a potential uh, further commercial stage, uh, which would make not three tonnes uh, over a couple of years, but... Uh, 225,000 tonnes of hydrogen per unit per year. Uh, now, is that going to happen is a, is a big question mark. Uh, whether it does or not, the, the rest of the supply chain, the, um, the tra domestic transport, international shipping, handling at the other end, that is all very relevant to the potential for uh, any sort of hydrogen export from Australia and indeed from other places. So there's a lot that's going to be learned from this project. But uh, you're right, it's not currently green hydrogen. It's uh, Today it's grey hydrogen with, um, with some offsets purchased for the, um, the emissions involved. But you're not going to be offsetting 225,000 tonnes a year uh, in a commercial stage. What capture rate they would achieve or, or, or target and how they would be kept to it are uh, the subject of more big arguments to be had. I've done some um, you know, back, of the, uh, back of the spreadsheet numbers uh, that suggest uh, because Latrobe Valley Brown Coal, like it's, it's a very inefficient fuel if it's used for electricity generation, it doesn't have a lot of fugitive emissions, so leaking methane from the mining of it unlike black coal, unlike uh, natural gas production. Uh, and so if it's part of a hydrogen production operation with carbon capture and storage that is operated at a very high capture rate, uh, it could actually be a quite clean fuel. Now, it's not as clean as uh, green hydrogen from... Uh, electrolysis with 100% renewable supply. Uh, but you could get, depending on the use case, if you're substituting this hydrogen from brown coal at a 95% capture rate, which I should say is possible but has not been sustained in any big facility operating to date that I'm aware of, uh, then that would be probably uh, uh, an 80% plus uh, reduction in emissions compared to using diesel or petrol uh, for the purpose that hydrogen was used. It would be a big reduction versus using black coal or natural gas. So a lot of people are going to say, well, you know, Gorgon CCS has been a malfunctioning dud. Why would anything else be different? Why would a, a new project uh, solve these problems? And uh, I think there are technical issues to argue about there, but really there are policy issues of what's going to be the motivation for uh, setting and hitting and continuing to hit a capture target. And unless there's a pretty hefty policy motivation, you know, whether that is a license condition, uh, a, a really stringent baseline under the safeguard mechanism, a carbon price, whatever it is, it's got to be pretty hefty 
to give that confidence? Because this is this is like social license challenge a go-go. Yeah, look, I, I think it's great. And go back to my point before, I think because we're in such a period of uncertainty, because we're looking at scale-up issues, um, there needs to be learning. Then We need to be trying lots of different things. And there will be learnings out of the HESC project uh, that will apply to green hydrogen as well. Um, and I think uh, the really important thing you know, to understand is that hydrogen's an energy carrier. Um, and so uh, the, the, the real advantage of hydrogen is going to be its low emissions potential or zero emissions potential. So uh, lots of energy sources can uh, go into producing hydrogen. But if you're taking uh, uh, brown coal, um, and you're converting it to hydrogen, you're, you're adding cost into the process, you're adding energy into the process. So if you're actually not capturing the emissions um, and you're not doing it at a cost-effective way, um, then you may as well just ship the brown coal. Um, and and I, think, I think that's going to be a really important part of this. In the, the determining factor of all of this will be uh, that second stage of that HESC project is going to be the really critical one, but the first one's going to deliver huge amounts of learnings um, across uh, not just Australia, but across the world um, in terms of scaling up um, hydrogen production. Um, and I think, I think they're, you know, so I think we need all of these, all of these projects going, but we, the key thing is we need sharing of, uh, of knowledge and learnings across these as well, if we're going to accelerate um, into the sort of low emission, zero emission, negative emission future we're, we're, we're wanting, wanting to do. I think that's the point, isn't it? We've got to keep sharing these learnings. We've got to learn actively, get in there and do it. Uh, I remember hearing uh, Malcolm Turnbull uh, uh, when in his role as Fortescue Medal Chairman, I think, he's just saying, let's just do it. Let's stop mucking around. We have to do stuff, and if we fail, at least we've learned. That's important, but sharing it is, uh, is, is also important, isn't it? We also need to think differently, and that brings us back to Tritium, um, a, a Brisbane-based company that came out of, I think, year q although you would correct me paul who have now just listed on the new york stock exchange to a, a wonderful reception tell me about tritium what's, what's their story um i don't know if i can tell you a lot about tritium but they are i mean they're a fantastic company they manufacture high-end advanced manufacturing in brisbane um i think they're also now manufacturing and they will i mean companies need to manufacture around the world it doesn't matter whether you're an australian company or whether you're a german company or us or um, or even indeed Japan. So, so you really want to uh, spread that manufacturing. But they've, they've, it's been a great journey for Tritium. Um, I they think they're they charging units, don't they? Uh, EV yeah, charging yeah, EV charging units. Uh, they've had a lot of success um, in uh, in Europe and in, in North America, um, and some you know eye-watering size contracts with some of the really major companies. Um, and it's a very you know it's a very smart very smart technology. Um, it's great to see because I think. Uh, going back to that EV uh, side of things that we talked about, that actually having manufacturing capability here is going to be really important um, and uh, a great part of, I guess, the economic potential out of all of these disruptive technologies and uh, new business models and new industries that are being created. Um, it's the, 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 the kind of AI group membership that's going to benefit out of, out of this by providing components, by providing equipment, by providing services not just into the domestic economy, but into the global economy. Um, so I, I love to see these kind of success stories uh, coming out of Australia. The challenge then is how do we keep them here? Uh, so how do we keep it? And, and, and part of that is actually how do we build out a whole ecosystem around these companies um, so that the talent, uh, so that the financing, so that the professional services, potentially other uh, EV charging manufacturers are also there as well because it kind of creates a destination, a cluster effect, uh, which actually underpins the sustainability of the sector. Um, uh, so I think that's the that's the really key thing we should be looking at is now how do we build around tritium um, to actually uh, really, re really not just secure tritium's uh, position in Australia, but actually uh, grow off the back and leverage uh, all of that great work that's been done. I think the, the the key part of this discussion is that we're we're world first in so world world ahead of the world in exporting hydrogen. Even though it's not perfect, at least we're there. We're trying that uh, when it comes to charging points on autobahns for for electric vehicles. 
we're there, we're ahead of the world in that. So we've got some opportunities here. Anyone listening to the, the podcast should be aware that it is possible to change the world uh, from Australia if, you, if you've got the right model the right, uh, and the right support. We're going to have to wrap it up, guys. I think one, just before we do, um, I've got a fun one for you. Uh, years ago, probably three or four years ago, Tenet, you and I were in a car, in my car, going up to, I think, Toowoomba, and we'll to talk about electricity. Uh, and we started talking about um, driverless cars, autonomous vehicles around cities. Uh, and you mentioned to me that you thought maybe that wouldn't be the future. Maybe we would never get past all the regulations required to have driverless cars in our cities, but we might go to flying flying cars first. Well, I read recently that there are a number, a number of patents and applications around the world for flying taxis, turning drones into human transportation. So it seems like you might be right. We might be going to the Jetsons, the flying vehicles. Are we going to see cars flying past my window anytime soon? Well, we're going to see a bit of this going on at least. And, you know, who knows whether this will be uh, the next big thing or it'll turn out to be uh, a, a, a solution in search of a problem. Um, but some of the issues, at least, that are challenging for autonomous vehicles uh, on the ground are a bit simpler in the air uh, because you don't currently, at least, have... Uh, well, you don't have pedestrians to worry about. You don't have cyclists to worry about. You don't have that much to worry about. Uh, aviation uh, is is a complex thing for a human, uh, but um, maybe maybe an easier challenge uh, for um, automation than ground based travel. So we'll see. Um, I think the the broader challenges for the the ride share industry. Um, are maybe going to be replicated for these startups, uh, but they're looking at you know other business models as well, not just people, but delivering uh, products, delivering um, all sorts of high time sensitivity items across cities that can be very hard to navigate uh, on the ground. And look, I mean, I think it, it's it'll be really hard as it always is, and I think that's one of the part of the excitement of this stuff to know where it might end. But you know, we've been delivering things uh, by air for a while. Um, you look at the Royal Flying Doctor service, so rather than you know jumping in a Ute or a, a, and and driving out to someone. I mean, so a lot of things like delivering medical supplies, for example, can be done quite easily by drones to remote homesteads, for example, um, or. Uh, to an oil and, oil and gas platform, for example, to get a, a, spare, a spare part out uh, quickly. There, there's ways of that which actually then helps scale the technology, build the business model, which then can sometimes end up in the consumer market. And we see this happen all the time. It comes from often large industries, maybe defence. And we know that UAVs has been a big issue in defence. And talking about advanced manufacturing, Boeing's going to build its defence UAV in Toowoomba in Queensland uh, for a global market. Um, so again, we can do these great things here, but things often flow. Um, and we talked about self-driving cars. Well, actually, I think we've had self-driving by stealth, power steering, automatic transmission, anti-lock braking systems. There's been a whole range of little things in cars over time uh, that have been uh, that have been moving them towards much less driver involvement. Um, and I think that's generally how things work. Uh, they they uh, Disruption creeps up on you. All of a sudden you go, wow, there's a self-driving car. But actually this technology has been going on for decades um, and it's just little bit by little bit by little bit. And I think the same with things like uh, air taxis and the like, where we're seeing this, people trying lots of different things um, and working out the technology, working out the business model, working out how to make it safe, how to make it economical. And then all of a sudden we'll go, wow, now my pizza is being delivered by a drone. Your grandkids or someone will one day say to you, did you really let people drive cars? Wasn't that insanely dangerous? <laughs> Didn't you have lots of accidents? Why did you let that happen? Uh, because we'll be in a whole new world. Absolutely. I've, I've said that many times to my, my youngest kids to actually, you know, that at some point they'll go, you know, on the, uh, on the, 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 the motorway, there was 100,000 individual drivers making decisions driving across four lanes. Um, every day and you'd go that's insane that sounds like a death trap 
um, their risk in that, right? Rather than having them all coordinated by artificial intelligence with uh, a driver as a backup uh, process. But um, you know, it 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 is. It's uh, it's interesting how that how that works. And there'll be lots of examples like that when we look back at our grandparents and say, "Wow, you used to do that. Why did you do that? Well, we did that because there wasn't another way of doing it, right?" So yeah, interesting. Uh, it's why innovation is so much fun. Also, once upon a time, young uni students and high school kids used to deliver their news in a newspaper to uh, to local suburbs. Can you imagine doing that? <laughs> Which is a nice wrapping up of our hour together. It's time to go, guys. I've had a great conversation. I think this has been uh, been fascinating. Good to get into the salad bowl and uh, get all these different issues on the table. We'll see what we talk about next uh, next episode. But for now, it's time to go. Thank you very much. Um, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, James. Thanks, Tennant. Pleasure as always.